You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket subs for the double-edged double bill. This week, it's a martial arts story full of exit wounds. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of the double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Thomas Mariani, and you've caught me at a bad moment because I'm about to do a giant martial arts stunt rig, so excuse me while I just... I am Adam Thomas, and R.I.P. Thomas Mariani. I'm okay. Uh, 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 oh, I, I guess something was faulty. Adam, do you have any idea about that and how I maybe almost died just there? I, honestly, no, I do not. I did not spend hours, and I do just mean hours, uh, planning your death. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. That's that's really uh, I appreciate that that open honesty that you didn't do any of that. Thank you so much. But Adam, it's time uh, to start the show. Where uh, basically every week Adam and I talk about a double feature based around a topic, one good movie, one bad movie. And uh, this time, in honor of Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings is coming out, we're talking about martial arts films again. Uh, We did this um, a little over a year ago or so, um, and uh, we're returning. And uh, as was the case then, and I still think is now, you are more of the martial arts person than I am. You you watched a lot of these movies uh, throughout your life, correct? Yeah, definitely. I I grew up on this stuff. Yeah, I'm definitely a pretty big fan for sure and i'm curious with like a shang chi coming out we've talked about off mic a lot about sort of some of these upcoming marvel movies what do you hope a shang chi brings over from some of your favorite martial arts movies in a bigger big budget also fantastical superhero context what do you think it needs just really tight fight choreography and uh you know rig over the top fight scenes and things like that that still are tightly choreographed and and hard hitting and from what I've heard, they definitely achieved that. Yes, that's true. We're recording this before that film comes out, so we'll see, especially since Marvel's been a bit dicey about their action and choreography, um, in that it's it's mostly been a lot of, like, kind of tight close-ups. Um, aside from, I would say, like, Winter Soldier in parts of Civil War, um, their action choreography has been uh, kind of uh, pre-vised, as they say. Yeah, no, definitely. So that that's sort of the, that, and just, like, the sort of maybe even the general, like, mysticism and things like that like the older sort of kung fu martial arts movies have um and there does look to be some of that in this too so that that's promising i mean hopefully while avoiding maybe some awkward stereotypes which i i assume they are given um that the the mandarin as depicted at least in the previews uh doesn't resemble the original design i think we're all better for that yeah i think that's i think that's just fine yeah 
very good without doing that. Um, but anyway, anyway, uh, we're here to talk about two martial arts movies we picked at the end of our last episode. Um, I had the good picks this time for this one, and I ended up with Police Story, which is a big Jackie Chan vehicle. And uh, your bad pick ended up being Exit Wounds, which is a Steven Seagal vehicle, amongst some other things. So two action stars we have not talked about on the show before would be very interesting to dive into their careers and these two movies as well so let's go ahead and start with police story jackie chan hold it dynamic dauntless resourceful At first, he was hailed as a hero. Lock him in the cells. Yes, sir. Book him. For murder. Until he got set up. Now, his whole police precinct is after him. To clear his name, his only chance is to get the crooks who framed him. Jackie Chan is a one-man battalion as he sets his record straight in Police Story. So Police Story came out uh, December 14th, 1985, and not only stars Jackie Chan, uh, but was also co-written by him and directed by him, and obviously a lot of the stunt choreography was handled by him and his team. And the song that plays over the credits is also by Jackie Chan. To to be fair, look, Hero Story is a banger, not gonna lie. Like, when that, that yeah. sets up, <laughs> just like, fuck yeah, I'm pumped. Uh, but yeah, so this is very much a Jackie Chan uh, vehicle in many ways. And um, I've said this before on the show, but I'm uh, unfortunately not as familiar with the more famous works of Jackie Chan. Most of what I know of Jackie Chan came from his uh, sort of American era when he actually came to be, which was, I found out interestingly, like, in the mid-90s, that kind of started with, like, Rumble in the Bronx was kind of his breakout in America, even though he had tried previously with stuff like he was in the Cannonball Run movies, and he also did The Protector right before this, which was kind of an infamous disappointment in terms of, like, mm-hmm. it really did not catch on. So this is him kind of proving himself with Police Story, which, um, you did it, <laughs> Jackie, because God fucking damn you did. Jesus Christ. Yeah, no, I, I definitely didn't really know who Jackie Chan was until, like, sort of Rumble in the Bronx and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, obviously he's most famous, I'd say, for, like, his... I call him his buddy cop movies, uh, either the Shanghai Knights movies or, you know, Rush Hour and whatnot. Yeah, if he was trying to prove to people that he could handle a production as well as get it pretty action-packed and sort of a stunt spectacular, uh, he fucking did it. He definitely <laughs> did that. Oh, yeah. I like to pretend that his father might have been murdered by a pane of glass in real life. <laughs> Yeah, that, that he's he uses these movies to get out that rage, <laughs> just really destroy. Like I, I'm, I'm sure Hong Kong had a severe glass shortage after this movie because Jesus probably still do after this one and the sequel. As someone who's kind of a novice coming into this movie, it, it's really interesting, especially from the first 15 minutes of this movie. Um, it's chaos. It is mad insanity that's going on from like there's this whole opening sequence in which uh jackie is part of like the stakeout in a smaller uh shanty town of sorts and uh he and the police end up uh being uncovered as it were their covers blown 
And uh, that starts an insane, like, car chase, and that whole entire village gets destroyed, and it leads to Jackie Chan, like, catching onto, like, a double-decker bus with an umbrella. This is all in the first, like, 20 minutes of this movie. There's already so much more action-packed than, like, the average American action movie, even to this day. Oh, yeah, no, definitely, dude. This movie hits the ground running. I mean, right off the bat. And, again, this was the one off mic that I was referencing that Tango and Cash basically stole yeah. the whole scene with Sir Stallone in the truck. Um, they do that with this in the bus and it looks so much better. Um, cause those guys fly out that fucking window and they just slam on the concrete and full camera and how are they alive? But yeah, no, this just, uh, it doesn't, this movie really doesn't relent, uh, as far as the sort of action, um, the, the way they give you breaths during it, it's cause some of it's done quite tongue in cheek. Yeah, I mean, the breaths that they kind of take are like a few moments where it's like, oh, hey, let's see Jackie Chan's relationship with his superiors or with his girlfriend, Maggie Chung, um, which is so, like, very Buster Keaton kind of, like, pratfally in those particular moments. Like, there's a whole sequence of mistakenness where he has to, at one point, be basically like a chaperone bodyguard for this one uh, female part of the antagonist group um this person played by uh, bridget lynn um who basically he has like bodyguard and like he brings him home and there's a surprise birthday party for him but oh no his girlfriend sees that he's with another woman and she gets like really pissed off and all this other like sitcom kind of like silly shit where at the same time he's doing a bunch of like over the top like pratfalls and shit that are very just like damn even these are just like this this would break my back let alone any of the other bigger shit you do dude anything he does in this movie would my back him going up the stairs quickly i'd break my <laughs> yeah no it, it's pretty insane dude i don't understand how he's still able to walk and be spry to this day jackie chan um especially with doing movies like these he he just he and his whole stunt team put everything on the line constantly as choreographed as it might be and as rehearsed as it might be these guys are still flying through tables and car doors and, you know, down escalators and regular stairs. Like, I just don't understand how he's still able to walk. Yeah, I mean, that that dude goes through, like, so much elaborate shit in this movie from, like, like you mentioned, like, right at the beginning, like, the whole chase that's going on is, like, so elaborate. Even, like, him chasing after the double-decker bus and getting the umbrella and, like, hanging off of that, basically. It's some Harold Lloyd, like, slapstick shit, but it's still, like, so bizarre. It's a game, like, just tap dance, literally, on top of the cars. That's, a, I think, a big thing that, based on, like, this movie and even some of the American movies I've seen, Jackie Chan is one of the few, like, martial arts guys who also feels like a dancer because he was actually trained in acrobatics and stuff along with martial arts, and it feels almost like he's a Gene Kelly, except in this case he is, like, punching the shit out of people instead of like singing in the rain but even then he has a fucking umbrella that he uses prominently in that one sequence yeah and that's the one thing about jackie chan too especially in these movies um and even sort of later on too like he he always you know wins the fights and stuff but he gets the shit kicked out of him all the time like not even just from the stunts but from whoever he's facing um it's a very unorthodox sort of way to do it as far as like major martial arts stars to where he almost looks like every move is out of desperation. It never looks like he's 
you know, Superman or like, you know, like how Jet Li is in some of his movies where it's so choreographed where he knows every move that's coming for it comes. Jackie Chan gets punched and kicked and thrown through shit constantly. No, yeah, he takes it. But also what I like is that he never feels like he's treating himself too seriously throughout all of it, despite being like director, co-writer, doing the song, all sorts of stuff. It's not really a vanity thing. Except in as much as, like, look at me getting just the shit beat out of me. But also, at the same time, he also has, like, a natural charm where you can see why, like, oh, he's also, like, a ladies' man. He also has a lot of great comedic beats, like the whole bit in the police station with the phones. Where he's going, like, from phone to phone and picking them up and having to answer them all at the same time. Or even, like, the scene where he's talking to Maggie Chung about, like, look, I'm sorry I haven't been around for you. Also, the brake on my car <laughs> doesn't work, so I'm gonna be, like, kind of walking along the street with you. But also, I'm gonna be, like, dragged by my car, basically, at the same time. There's a lot of that sort of, like, he, he likes being the buffoon at the same time that he is the handsome lead. Oh, yeah, no, he's, you could tell Jackie Chan is definitely into sort of slapstick physical comedy. Uh, I mean, without a doubt. he He's... And he's really fucking good at it. And he does it in everything he's in, um, even in the Rush Hour movies and all that stuff. It's sort of his his M.O. And, and I just that's one thing that I've always really liked about Jackie Chan is that he's sort of not afraid to make himself look like a doofus. And he does it really, really well. Yeah. And while at the same time being like a compelling lead. I mean, it's interesting, I will say, given this is called Police Story, there is also the weird factor of um, this movie is extreme propaganda in terms of, like, what it's portraying about, like, oh, it's, he's our lone hero cop who's trying to face off against everybody. And literally, at one point, he has, like, a huge monologue near the end where everyone's like, oh, we think you might have murdered this guy, so we have to, like, keep you, we have to make sure that you did or not. And he's just like, I'm tired of your bureaucracy destroying everything. I need to be the hero. I need to do this immediately. <laughs> and obviously, with this movie, I don't think it's quite as offensive because it's more about just getting to these action beats like literally uh jackie chan and the co-screenwriter um edward tang were both like hey look we let's we have all the set pieces planned out let's just kind of string it together with a vague cop story of some sort and so that kind of stuff is more of just like him as an excuse to get to the shopping mall finale sequence but at the same time, there is a bit, especially given like Hong Kong has its own history with police brutality and shit like that. It's just like, okay, this is a bit off. But at the same time, the movie doesn't focus on it enough to be like that huge a concern personally. Oh, no. Yeah, I definitely agree. It definitely just feels like sort of a loose plot device to constantly get him on the run and constantly make him want to hunt down these guys. It is very propaganda, but it's not. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it offensive at all. Yeah, um, I would say it's a bit more offensive in, like, A Police Story 2, which I also watched, and I like that movie decently enough. But that one's a lot more about sort of the mystery and unraveling what's going on, and the action beats, while they're great, are not as, like, constant. Because, like, this movie basically goes, like, here's a 15 to 20 minute action set piece, followed by, like, 10 minutes of a bit of plot, and then another big, giant action set piece, and then a bit more plot, but then the other action set piece comes in. Like, it's a lot more evenly spaced here compared to that one. Yeah, I agree. I like part two quite a bit as well. I haven't seen it in a while, but I remember always, I've always liked this one more, and it probably is for that reason alone. It just, it feels more, like you said, more a little bit more consistent as far as balancing the action with the sort of plot, where they... they they really just want to show you the goods in this one. Well, and speaking of the goods, Adam, I got to ask, what is your favorite sort of like martial arts, either set piece or like moment in this movie that like really firmly to you feels like, oh, this is something like only a Jackie Chan and his stunt team could really do. What's a big spotlight for you in this movie? I mean, basically the entire mall sequence. <laughs> <laughs> like it's 
fucking crazy. But my favorite little bit in the mall sequence is where Jackie Chan picks up the guy almost like Wilbur style and then swings him through that glass display. <laughs> like, oh my God, dude. Um, yeah, but yeah, the whole mall sequence is just incredible. It, it's just nonstop stunt spectacular, and it's it's amazing. Um, I mean, I, I can't argue that the, the, the finale sequence is pretty impressive. I think particularly, like, the big famous moment of this movie is uh, the the big bit where Jackie Chan slides down a pole from the escalator down three stories, and the movie shows you the three different camera angles they got because he was only doing that once, and they wanted to make sure you saw every single version of it. Um, and it also was, like, amongst several other injuries that happened in this movie, as you can see during the outtakes, which... We'll talk about those in a second. But um, the big final stunt that happens there, uh, basically when he slid down that pole, the lights covering the pole heated up so much it resulted in him getting second degree burns, particularly on his hands. And then he also had like back injuries and dislocated his pelvis when he landed. But what I love also is that in the shot, you can clearly see right after he slides down, even though all those things have happened to him, he gets back up and starts continuing the fucking fight. <laughs> Just decimate. Yeah, he immediately gets up and confronts the guy. He just runs up to him. Like, how is he running with a broken pelvis, a jacked up back, and second degree burns on his hands and like on his inner legs? This guy's a maniac. But hey, dude, they, that's the one thing too about Jack Chan. He is so dedicated to this craft and to making sure everything works. And he just—it's kind of amazing how fully committed he is to to doing this stuff because. You know, shocker, not very common for the big stars to do their own stunts unless you're like a Tom Cruise now or even uh, talk about another martial artist. Tony Jaa does all his own stunts, too, at least in his non-American films. I'm not sure if they let him do them here, probably because insurance purposes. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, it's fucking crazy, dude. And, you know, you just it adds so much more to these giant stunt scenes or fight scenes when you can see it's the actual guy doing it. It's so cool. Yeah, but to just shout out also even just some other bits in this movie. I also love there's the whole sequence when he finds um, was right before like the whole thing where he gets framed happens and he finds like the the other cop who was like kind of in on it that was trying to do all this stuff. Um, when he encounters like the the guys in that like apartment or whatever, and the fight that proceeds to happen where the first victim is like a guy who's in a chair. And he gets, like, immediately, like, bumped off. Like, Jackie Chan, like, hits him over. And throughout the fight, you keep seeing Jackie Chan, like, throw shit or people at that guy. And he's still, like, squirming there barely alive by the end of it. I just love that, like, even some of these side people get really big things. Like, even during that sequence, there's an awesome shot of Jackie Chan kicking a guy through a window. And you see outside as, like, he, like, falls over, hits, like, the fucking awning and then falls over onto like the tennis court or whatever that's there it is like astonishing and that guy's body folds like an accordion <laughs> how is he alive um yeah no that's a really really good fight scene especially because it is in that one tight little area of that room and uh yeah i know exactly what you're talking about it's the guy that uh sort of grabs jackie from behind me he jumps up into the and they land on the chair and then, uh, yeah, from that, from then on, that guy just gets shit thrown on him and at him and other people, and yeah, it's it's pretty spectacular. Yeah, or there's even also another great sequence in which, um, at one point, Jackie Chan is in uh, Bridget Lin's apartment, and um, he 
is trying to get her to basically like cooperate because she's kind of being distant. So he hires like one of the other guys at the police station to come in and be like basically Michael Myers and <laughs> try and stab her. And he has to keep doing this thing where like he fights that guy but he doesn't want to hurt him. Except he does, but he's also like, look, you have to pretend like you're limp or whatever. Or even when he goes limp, just like, oh, I have to pretend like he's still alive and then try and like get him down. And also, so that is such like a clever action set piece with a running gag throughout it. That's like makes, especially the fact that like that is such like a fun set piece that you don't even think about how Jackie Chan's character, like Sergeant Chan, is an asshole throughout this whole movie. He is like a piece of shit of a person for doing so many of these other things and also how he treats even Maggie Chung, his girlfriend. But at the same time, you don't care because of how charismatic Chan is as a star as he's going through all these elaborate like, choreographed routines like that one. Yeah, 100%. And I, I you know, I just love, I, I don't know if you watched, did you watch the dubbed version? No, I watched the uh, subtitled version. Yeah, I watched it on Criterion, so it's the dubbed version. I watched it also on Criterion and that's, I also, there's a version where you can watch it subbed. Oh, I watched the dubbed one and it was just making me laugh so hard because in that scene with the other cop, it's like he's constantly trying to cue Jackie Chan to come in. He's like, okay, well, now I'm going to kill you. Yep, I'm going to stab you now. Here I come. Oh, now you're really going to die. And he does it five times in a row. It just, it was killing me. I'm like, this is so fucking silly. Damn it. I wish I had watched the subbed version. Oh, what are you going to do? Because I'll tell you the dubbed one. Oh my God. The one guy who um, shoots the other cop talks like this, see? <laughs> like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're convincing me maybe to watch that version. <laughs> that sounds pretty great. Um, but even, yeah, like like we mentioned, like there's so many other people. Like even, I'm not sure if it, I'm guessing it's not Maggie Chung who actually does her own stunts in this movie. But there's a bit where she's trying to leave after like a big misunderstanding in the apartment. And Jackie Chan grabs her by the backpack and as she's like, she's trying to leave. And so she like gets propelled backwards, like hanging off from her fucking bike. She like, we're like, even besides Jackie, people get screwed over. Like even at the opening with like the car chase that happens where they go through that town and just destroy it. You can see people fucking running on top of the roofs of these buildings as they're falling apart. And she's like, like the entire stunt team is going through so much shit. It makes it so worth it because you do see it all on screen i mean these guys some of the most impressive stunt work ever on film um especially with this type of genre of film i mean it's crazy there's bodies everywhere people flying everywhere you know his runaway car almost hits him and his girlfriend and they just move in time and then it destroys the phone booth behind him like dude this these people are fucking nuts like they're nuts i i am all for being dedicated to your craft but good god at what cost yeah, the one that really, like, upset me was the bit where in the final mall set piece, the guy is fighting Jackie Chan near the escalators, and Jackie Chan throws him down the middle in between the escalators. He, like, slides down that way. Like, dude, I'm not becoming, like, postage going down that slot, dude. That is, <laughs> that's insane. It's insane, and he fuck zips down that thing. And they get stuck at the bottom. Like, nah, dude. Nope, not doing that. Or the same thing where he dumps the one guy between the escalators and he falls and he's like hitting the walls as he falls down and lands on a table. You're like, what the fuck, dude? Like, these guys are crazy. And you see their consequences during the bloopers, which is a big thing that like, this was one of at least the 
I don't know if it was the first time he did, but he had done it after Cannonball Run, apparently, was what inspired him to do bloopers after his movies. And this one is so fascinating because it cuts between, like, oh, I'm Jackie Chan, I flubbed a line, or oops, the bullets didn't hit into the gun quite correctly, and then also people being carried out on gurneys with horrible injuries. Rumble in the Bronx has the same thing. Mm -hmm. Funny. It's so silly, haha. And then, oh, he destroyed his leg and busted it. Now he's finishing the movie with a cast on his leg, but a sock that's painted to look like a tennis shoe. Like, it's, he's, it's fucking nuts, dude. It's nuts. But again, like I said, if you didn't have all that stuff in these movies, they wouldn't be exciting. It wouldn't be as exciting if you could tell it was always stunt doubles. I mean, it's, it could still be really cool, but the fact that it is the guys that you're seeing on screen and also going through the shit just escalates it to another level. Oh, no, yeah, fully agreed. It, it, it just is like, it shows so much of that dedication where at the same time, like Jackie Chan, I, I think it's because he likes the idea of his image being, I'm the guy who can be the movie star, but actually show my worth. Like there's so much of that stuff that we, we talked about, like the Tango and Cash thing that they ripped off, where in Tango and Cash, Stallone like does the thing where he puts the bullets inside, right? That's what, what's the thing that the bullets are put into again? The cylinder. Right, the cylinder. He puts, like, all the bullets in the cylinder out of that little casing and, like, flips it around and then points the gun and the everyone comes out of the, the giant bus and shit. Uh, that was very much ripped off by Tango and Cash a bit later. But that, it's because, like, Stallone clearly saw that moment. He's just like, oh, that dude's a star and knows exactly what his image is. Because that's so badass doing that. At the same time that, like, he can also prove that by, like, I can do, like, these big movie star moments, but unlike a Stallone, I can go through all the rigmarole of, like, falling over or doing these elaborate choreographed things like the phone bit, like these big things. I can get hit with in the face with cake, but also I can slide down that fucking pole like a badass, because you know I can. Like, it, it shows, like, so much of that, and even, like, when he's in those bloopers, you can see bits of him actually directing everything, where it's like, it shows that he's the master of his domain, while he's being like, oh, I can be kind of silly, I can be the musician, I can do all this other stuff. It shows that he's a jack of all trades. A jackie of all trades, as it were. Hey. Hey. Good joke. Hey. Well, like we said, he's he's got the comedy down. He is um, incredibly charming, and you just, you love Jackie Chan in his movies. You want to follow him. You want him to succeed. You want him to be the hero and the, the good guy, which, to my knowledge, he's never played a villain t straight out, as far as I know. Um he's just he's just so damn likable and yet terrifying at the same time like yeah i don't i don't want jackie chan to be mad at me or, or want revenge on me for something like he's gonna throw me through a car door like it's <laughs> or beat me up with the steering wheel of said car somehow like i'm good man but at least he'll serenade you with hero story while that's happening you know and that's all that matters 100 percent, and then do stupid faces because he can't figure out how to get the gun out of his holster or something uh well uh i think it's about time we uh, got into final thoughts here because we do have a whole nother movie to talk about a whole nother career to get into a bit more so uh, adam your final thoughts on the uh lovely police story or as uh the crew kept calling it glass story which i think is the more appropriate title honestly well glass story is not necessarily my favorite jackie chan film but it's definitely up there um it's definitely one if nobody has seen a non-American Jackie Chan film, this is a good one to sort of lead them off because it is a lot of stuff that's still very reminiscent of sort of like Rush Hour or Shanghai Noon and all those things. Like, it, it, there's a lot of that in this, but, I mean, honestly, that's mostly Jackie Chan movies, has that sort of 
comedic element as, as well as like the buffoonery and all that. But this one really does it very well too. Um, I, I just think it's, it's a fun movie. Man. It breezes by great, great stunt scenes, action bits, everything. Um, it kind of has everything going for it. Um, so yeah, like I said, for maybe a Jackie Chan novice, I, I would recommend maybe starting with this one. I, I think this is a good start point. Well, for the record, before we get to my final thoughts, I'm curious, if this isn't your favorite Jackie Chan movie, what is? Legend of Drunken Master. Hmm. I don't know why, but there's a lot of great fight bit, fight scenes in that one, too. And it's just Jackie Chan being a goof the whole movie. Like, he gets comically drunk all the time. Um, <laughs> it's just, it's super fun. I really like that one a lot. Well, as someone who was very much a novice, like you mentioned, this is a great introductory point for what Jackie Chan was so famous for doing. I, I think it's it's such a stellar example of showing off like how he can be, the, like I said, he can be the goofball, he can be the, the badass, he can be the everyman at the same time that he's doing all these elaborate, massive stunts that are just like so fascinating. Like This almost felt like a religious experience in how many times I said Jesus Christ throughout watching this movie. So I'm like, oh, fuck, oh, Jesus, god damn, what? What are you doing? There's there's so much of that. It's so worth it just for that. In the same way that, like, you may watch, like, a horror movie for a kill and something like that happens. Like, oh, Jesus. Like, there are so many of those kind of points watching this movie just out of sheer horror. Like, there's a bit we didn't even talk about during the, the big mall stunt choreography where Jackie Chan is, like, getting kicked into a glass display and you see it from, like, the point of view of the glasses, it's breaking with Jackie Chan. You can see the pain in his face. That pain instantly makes you empathize for him, while at the same time he is being such a weirdo doing all these like big elaborate sense. This is like <laughs> unstoppable martial arts machine of sorts who at the same time is just able to be like fun and affable like it, it has such a great mix of those things that i don't think ever quite translated to at least some of the american movies of his i've seen um not so much as tuxedo you know not not as much of that in there uh but in police story a lot of it is there now we definitely recommend uh, watching that one but before we get into our next feature here is a promo for an eso shaking queue up right after ours DragonCon 2021 is scheduled for Labor Day weekend, and whether it's an in-person event or once again goes virtual, the DragonCon Report podcast crew will cover the con right up to the big event. So sit back with your bucket of brown, dragon's mead, apple pie, or whatever your beverage of choice, and tune in to the latest news, notes, interviews, discussions, and even a dragon tale or two on the DragonCon Report, a proud member of the ESO Network. Check us out at dragonconreport.com. And now let's get into our bad feature, Exit Wounds. A lot of people talk about police corruption, but no one ever sees it. This was taken from the property vault just a few minutes ago. Our guys inside said it took about 50 kilos of heroin. Someone's having a big party tonight. Sometimes you have to go undercover. Used to work for internal affairs. Out of all the people around you, how'd you know who you could trust? To bring justice to the law. They're all dirty, but I need your help to prove it. I promise that I would always be my brother's keeper. I keep my promises. Sometimes you have to walk in the darkness to bring the truth to light. So 
So Exit Wounds came out March 16th, 2001, uh, directed by, I apologize if I mispronounce this, uh, Andreas Bartikawak, maybe, uh, who we have covered one of his films previously, Adam, because he directed the unforgettable Street Fighter Legend of Chun-Li. Oh, great. A, a master director in his own right, a true auteur, as they say. Um, even though the auteur of this one, I'm sure, was not him as much as it was the star Steven Seagal, who this is the first time we've covered a Seagal joint. And I know, Adam, uh, we've talked off mic, uh, you are, or, or at least you were as a child, a big Seagal fan. Was as a child a big Seagal fan, definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, Seagal, you know, it's funny, the way I always looked at it, where it's like, yeah, the Arnolds and the Stallones were like a hard R. You had maybe like Van Damme movies, some of them just because of the sexual stuff would almost be like an NC-17. And Seagal felt like, you know, either X-rated or just completely unrated type of shit. They're so overtly violent and just brutal. Um, I mean, from the very first movie he did to, you know, I don't know. This is probably the last one of his I really saw because, man, fuck that guy. But, um, yeah, they always felt dirtier. Like, his movies always felt more violent and more extreme so it always almost felt like maybe i shouldn't be watching them and it just made me want to watch them more yeah as a kid he was definitely one of the ones like we talked about how i was more raised on like schwarzenegger and stallone uh which were more of what my dad liked necessarily and john claude van damme was somebody like i mentioned when we did our john claude van damme episode a bit ago uh was someone i didn't discover until more recently and the same with seagal uh because apparently like i was talking to my dad even before we record this episode and i was telling him oh yeah the, the bad one is uh steven seagal movies like ugh god the worst and he kind of has that reputation honestly most of what i knew about seagal before seeing any of his movies was the bit uh, on mad tv which not a funny show mad tv but will sasso god bless him his steven seagal impression yeah. he's pretty goddamn funny on that show yeah it's pretty spot on but now you you and i watched one together on our on our movie nights mm-hmm. and you've seen a couple more now um two good ones out there maybe three <laughs> I mean, I'll say this much with, like, Seagal, based on what I've seen, which for the record has been, what was the one that we watched in the movie? I can never remember the title of this one that we did. The one with Keith David in it? Marked for Death. Marked for Death, yes. I saw Marked for Death, which was very fun in its very bad way. Um, I've seen the two Under Siege movies as of recent, um, and I also watched back when it was a thing, Machete, uh, when that was out, which he is in, briefly. Um, but with, uh, the, at least like the ones I've seen, the ones that kind of work, which I would say is the first under siege and marked for death. I can say like, they kind of work in spite of Seagal because they have like solid, like supporting casts around them. Like obviously under siege, like Gary Busey, Tommy Lee Jones, like a lot of talented people kind of supporting his lack of charisma. Um, as opposed to in like this movie where there's a supporting cast around him. And I, they're all trying, but uh, not all of them are quite as talented to be able to do so. And this was sort of his attempt to return to a comeback, uh, because after, uh, from what I understand of his career-wise, he kind of started getting into people's attention in the late 80s, and then Under Siege was a big hit. And progressively, he kind of lost the will very quickly of the American audience to the point where by 96, he was doing direct-to-video movies. And this was his first theatrically released movie in quite a bit. And it was surprisingly successful on a $33 million budget, made $80 million. Um, but he also did a couple other ones after this, like, I know, Half Past Dead, other ones where he teamed up with a rapper 
like in this case yep. DMX is the uh, the rapper that's adjacent to him, the other sort of co-lead. Um, but those movies didn't do that well. And now, aside from Machete, since 2005, all his movies have been in direct-to-video hell, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, and with good reason. One, because of the man himself. Yeah. Uh, and that's probably the only reason. He's just, A, not a good lead. He's never been a really capable, charismatic lead. Like, yeah, he can throw people into shit and it's very awesome looking but that's about all he's got for him and b he's um he's a real motherfucking asshole he is a terrible terrible person to his co-stars directors female co-stars especially uh he's just uh not bankable because everybody hates him yeah, when a third of your Wikipedia page is lawsuits, <laughs> you know you're not you're not a good guy, <laughs> quite frankly. Um, but but yeah, so this um, was a vehicle of his that kind of almost got him back. Um, but I I would say honestly, watching this and I texted you this or I messaged you this while um, you were watching it again. The trouble with this movie that's so kind of like frustrating is. There's actually a pretty decent little, like, early 2000s crime movie in here that keeps getting interrupted by the Seagal movie. Because, basically, he plays this detective who, at the start of the movie, does a big, elaborate, like, display to save the vice president from being assassinated on a bridge. And that gets him demoted because he goes in brazen uh, to try and stop him. And then he ends up in this other precinct uh, where most of the... Um, people that are working there are not trusting of him, and as it turns out, a lot of them are dirty, and he ends up uh, running into this guy who seems to be a drug dealer, uh, uh, played by DMX, the late, as a recent DMX, and I'm not a huge DMX person, in terms of, like, I don't have any, I didn't have any ill will toward the man, and so, like, I, I was wearing, like, Rough Riders Anthem, and, like, it's gonna give it to you, but I hadn't even seen a movie, really, with him in it. Aside from he was like had a brief cameo in like top five, which I had seen. But watching this movie, I just kept thinking, man, he's a pretty decent lead for like a, like I said, like a sort of small crime movie that he's kind of in. And I just wish it was more of that instead of this dumb Seagal movie that keeps interrupting it. I would have had a lot more fun if it was just like a DMX vehicle, quite frankly. Uh, you know, the thing is, I, I never thought DMX was uh, a good actor. Um, I still hold to that. Um, but I, I have to agree with you. I think DMX had the potential to become very good um, if he'd have kept getting work because he's not the worst by any means. Um, he's just uh, – he, he's, he's new. You could tell. Like it's not his forte yet. Um, but I definitely agree with you that there is sort of a really cool early 2000s sort of mystery plot, you know, the fact that he's a dot-com millionaire and all this stuff like it's pretty cool it's fun it could be awesome uh but yeah it just keeps getting sidelined like you said by this stereotypical steven seagal plot where he's this loose cannon cop and no one trusts him and his name is oren boyd which is one of the <laughs> fucking stupidest names <laughs> and, all right i'm just gonna say it now you know your movie is a problem when i would rather watch tom arnold on screen than steven seagal in this movie a hundred percent um, I mean, that's tough, because I don't like Seagal at all, but on the other hand, I also don't like Tom Arnold at all, and the scenes where it's the two of them, which most of their scenes are together, um, I thought were kind of excruciating. I think that was sort of like the middle point between somebody who's not trying at all, and somebody who's trying too hard, 
and they clash together in a way that feels like razor blades and acid. I get it, but at least Tom Arnold is trying, whether it's too hard or not. At least he's trying. Um, Steven Seagal just is, does not give a fuck. And also, I have to address this because I noticed it when I first saw it. And I, I got to say it again. Steven Seagal doing like flips and handstands is the most ridiculous thing I think I've ever seen. It is so bad. It is so because he's not even fat Seagal yet. Like he's became fat Seagal, like fat Dracula is like what he looks like now. Like, I don't understand why he has a widow's peak. Like, dude, we've seen you in movies for 30 years. You never had a widow's peak. But hey, whatever. He's like six foot five or whatever he is, and he's doing these these handstand kicks and flipping over guys. It is so laughably bad looking to where nobody saw that. was like, no, we can't. No, no, no. Because Seagal is probably like, yeah, make it look like I could do all this cool shit. No, we're leaving that in the movie. Or if it'd be Seagal now, because for some reason he's Creole now, which is the (laughs) easiest thing. No, leave it in the movie, baby. No, it's cool. Yeah, Steven Seagal Law, man, his reality show kind of retconned him to be Creole now. His In his universe of Seagal, he is now Creole. He's a Creole. He's a Louisiana sheriff. So, yeah, for some reason, he's Fat Dracula with a Creole accent who's really fucking tight in Russia. Like, what the fuck? Who is this guy? <laughs> oh, very good questions. But, like, I, I think that particularly becomes a thing in after he has this really bad self-help scene that seems very critical of psychology in a way that feels like, okay, Seagal, you're a person who doesn't feel like he can cry, I can tell. Um, And he's like, this is that stupid comedy bit where he's stuck in the fucking desk and it goes on for fucking ever and it's dumb. Um, He gets out of there and then he goes outside and his car's being jacked by a gang and then he's like, hey, let me tell you how to do this right. And then he just proceeds to like kick their asses and he does one particular flip that I think you're referring to after a guy pulls a gun on him. It's just like impossible for especially like you mentioned, a guy who at this point is kind of like in the in-between between like Fat Seagal and his earlier days where he's kind of Husky, but not necessarily that big. He's kind of that middle point, and he's six foot four, and he fucking does this weird flip that's just like, <laughs> this feels like those shots in like a Muppet movie where they have a full size Muppet that suddenly like flops around and you see its legs. Like, sure, that's what you did. Yeah, it's Kermit riding a bike. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not even that advanced. It's like when they throw Kermit in the air, like across a bar, like in the Muppet movie. He's like, whoa! <laughs> For sure, his legs do Kermit's arms when he's excited. Um, <laughs> it's ridiculous and and the thing is all right i'm from michigan okay i've been to detroit a lot of times grew up right around detroit on the outskirts um still go down to detroit occasionally this is not detroit i i mean maybe there's some pickup shots but for the most part this isn't detroit just as much as it's not eva mendes's voice Oh, well, that brings up a whole nother thing. Because, <laughs> like, beyond the fakeness of, like, it, it looks like Ontario or some shit, or, like, like, Vancouver, I'm sure, where they shot this. Or, or it was somewhere where, like, I know there's a whole thing where, like, DMX was on the set of this, and then he went over to shoot that one Sum 41 video, where, like, he comes in on, like, the little, the four-wheeler <laughs> motorcycle. <laughs> like, that happened, like, at the same, I think it was in Canada, maybe? I'm not sure. Well, those guys are Canadian, so probably. Makes sense, yeah. But anyway, anyway, like that's all obviously Canada. But then also, even Mendes in this movie, this is very early. I think this is even pre-training day, right? 
Yes. Point being, uh, Eva Mendes is in the movie, and the moment she comes on screen, um, when like he's basically assaulting Anthony Anderson, who's someone else we also have to talk about in this fucking movie, um, but he like is doing this, and Eva Mendes is like, "Hey, what are you doing?" and it's not the sultry Eva Mendes voice that we all know and love. It's like, did you get Kristen Bell to dub her over? Like some <laughs> fucking white ass lady? Because it's just like, this This doesn't fit. This is It's like Uncanny Valley, where it's just like, this looks like Eva Mendes, but that's not Eva Mendes. Dude, it sounds like someone doing like a Cialis commercial. Like the voice. <laughs> it's so bad and so bland. And it's clearly just some white bread ass lady. And, you know, the logic behind it is so ridiculous. Well, we just thought she didn't sound like she was smart enough to read these lines. What lines? You thought this script was that fucking smart that Eva Mendez's voice wouldn't handle? Take a look at our equipment. We got cameras. Yeah, the, the producers claim that she didn't sound intelligent enough, which is um, extreme sexist horseshit. Um, that feels, I guess, appropriate for a Steven Seagal movie based on, as you mentioned, uh, he is also a scumbag to women. So it just feels like, oh, it's all-encompassing in so many like sad ways there. And it's such a bummer where like all that stuff is happening and it sucks, even though even Mendes is a part of the DMX thing, which I want to shout out especially... There's a couple really cool bits with DMX where I think especially sort of the martial arts thing to contrast with what you're talking about there. Like after that sequence with Eva Mendes, Steven Seagal comes in and like busts up this like drug deal that's going on. And him and DMX have like a fight. And DMX is a really cool fucking move where he like grabs a chain and like runs along the wall and then kicks Steven Seagal in the face. That's like the best martial arts bit in this whole fucking movie, honestly. Is <laughs> see like shit like that, and I feel like DMX I think is really doing a lot of the Seagal thing, where Seagal's big thing in his movies is he kind of talks about a whisper, kind of like this. He doesn't really uh, raise his voice that much. And DMX has a similar thing where he's obviously very raspy, but at the same time he has a consistent cool about him in this movie that I respect. Like there's a whole scene where him and Anthony Anderson go to a car dealership. And uh, they buy a Lamborghini, which I have a lot of issues, particularly Anthony Anderson's doing his, you know, pre-Anthony Anderson being good in movies thing, where he kind of, like, is a bad comedic relief that's, like, really annoying. But DMX, the whole time, while he's being, like, the, the one snooty uh, car salesman who's like, oh, I'm black, but I'm not, like, the commoners, just, like, a really shitty character. Um, DMX, like, looking, examining the Lamborghini, he's like, I'm gonna take this. And then we'll go for this. Excuse me, sir. I don't think you have the money for this. I suggest you step out of the car. And he's like, you know what? I suggest you start the paperwork. And snaps his fingers. Like, that's a cool fucking bit. To the point where I'm just like, this dude should have been in, like, in those fucking Fast and Furious movies. He would have fit perfectly in that. Where he just has this, like, cool demeanor the whole time that he's, like, unflappable. He's not, I agree, a great actor. But I think he's a really solid movie star persona at that particular point. That could have advanced a lot further if people gave him the chance. Yeah, I agree. He, he oozes charisma. Uh, he, he definitely does. And yeah, that scene, you know, to, to get on Anthony Anderson, Anthony Anderson, I like Anthony Anderson, especially like, you know, now, but this movie and like Romeo must die. Anthony Anderson are some of the most annoying fucking characters. He's so annoying and it's just these horrible comedic bits and, and it's played to death. Like we fucking get it. He's a, he's a goofball. Oh, oh, oh got us. It's just, it's dumb. It's so fucking dumb. Uh, but to get into the martial arts thing, yeah, I'd say that kick scene is really good, even the way it's shot. And also kind of anything Michael Jai White does. 
Okay, the Michael J. White we need to talk about where, like, he's one of, like, the corrupt cops in the station. And there's a great bit one where he reveals himself to DMX as being one of the bad guys. He literally turns around his chair and he's just like, yeah, the one that I always wanted to fucking do that. I wish I had a cat. <laughs> like, is there really like that? It's so fucking good. I love Michael J. White doing that. But also, there was a big fight sequence he has with Steven Skull, which apparently was not choreographed, and you can tell. Because Michael J. White is going to 10,000% with, like, he is flipping around. There's a point where, like, he jumps onto, like, a bunch of boxes that are in this warehouse, and he's got, like, half of one of those, like, cutter things that they're using to, like, cut heroin, basically. And he fucking flips around and, like, onto Seagal. Meanwhile, Seagal's just, like, kind of standing there, like, eh, I'll guard yep. myself. And that's... <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's jumping in the air and doing splits and swinging the sword down between his legs and everything. And Seagal is just literally like, yeah, come on, come get me. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm better than you at this. You're like, what the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> it's so stupid. Ah, oh, man. There's a lot of dumb in this movie. There's a lot, a lot of dumb in this movie. Like, the, the corrupt cops, they're all so dumb and so bad. And these horrible sort of just stereotypes of corrupt cops in movies. Like, I don't get me wrong. Corrupt cops, shockingly, they do exist. But it just, you know... Yeah, he's the big German guy. You know, he used to be part of the KKK. Took down a whole cell by himself. He's dumb, but strong. Oh, then how is he a cop? <laughs> if he's a big idiot, how is he this great, like, supposedly undercover, like, cop? Do they do the captain wrong or what, man? Oh, like, my just... God, yeah. Jill Hennessy, who plays, like, commander that's over at the other precinct, she gets horribly murdered. Well, not murdered. She's like, gets in the middle of this, like, horrible accident where she is just, like, bloody and, like, she's hanging on the car. Like, and after, like, a bunch of really bad flirtation scenes with Seagal, he just looks at her like, oh, shit. Anyway, I gotta go. <laughs> uh-huh. Yep. Yeah. And then our guy from fucking Time Cop. Um, Bruce McGill, what's... sir. You say his fucking name. <laughs> Bruce McGill. Like, when he shows up and the whole reveal there, you're like, oh, this is so stupid. Why? This is just so stupid. Yeah, the movie keeps doing, like, twists on twists where you're like, oh, this guy who, like, Steven Seagal blows his cover during that initial scene. Which leads to the hilarious thing where he's a traffic cop and he's doing it to James Brown. Huh? Yeah. Yes. Uh, but but anyway, then it turns out, like, oh, he's actually, like, still kind of working with DMX he's actually trying to sell heroin oh it turns out he is a corrupt cop and then you're like okay that's a lot but then it gets to bruce mcgill and then also there's all the stuff with dmx you mentioned where he's actually like oh i'm a heroin dealer but really i'm a dot-com millionaire and i'm trying to like help out my brother who's been in prison for a while like and then the bruce mcgill thing happens like guys (laughs) like this is the hat on the hat concept to the point which is like this is like a full closet of hats it's like there's too much twist going on (laughs) But they even do the Bruce McGill reveal where he's the bad guy and he's about to shoot Steven Skull. And then Bill Duke comes in. And you're like, okay, for God's sakes, can we just have this wrap up at this point? Look, I'm going to be real, though. Seeing Bill Duke kicking ass with that shotgun, I'm just like, yeah, fuck yeah. Go, Bill Duke. <laughs> Me too, for sure. I, I mean, Bill Duke's badass. But it's just, it's so many little plot twists wrapped up in like 10 minutes worth of film. At this point. And then I'm one of my favorite bits ever is, you know, supposedly DMX were cameras on his body all the time when he meet these cops. And then they show the scene where Michael White turns around and he's not even looking at DMX from the point of view of the camera. He's completely looking off to the side. Like it's literally the scene we already saw. Yeah, but it's the same just- exact footage. 
exact footage, but supposedly it's from DMX's body cam. It's so cheap and stupid. I mean, there's there's even other things like that where, like, I, I want to go back to Tom Arnold here because I want to emphasize, like, we've talked about Tom Arnold, not a fan. Um, a, a, a disgrace to Tom's out there, Mr. Arnold. Uh, but, like, especially during there's a whole sequence where, like, Steven Skull wants to get intel from him because he's like this jerry springer style talk show host or some shit uh, who has like people on the inside that can get like weird expose shit or like whatever he can uh information for seagal and he, they meet up at a strip joint for all of this and it's one of the more like skeezy fucking scenes that's just like steven seagal's trying to be like all high and mighty about just oh my god i can't believe it this silly guy and his strippers and tom was like hey you know what I'm, I'm i'm good for this you want to join in on the stripper thing and i'll help you out and all this other shit it's that scene is like the nadir of the movie to me where everything just like completely falls apart. The other scene where they meet up and he actually gives the information is only good because DMX is like shown doing these things when he reveals stuff about him, his backstory and DMX just wears the shit out of like really stylish clothes and then goes into his car in the smoothest way possible. Just like, yeah, I'm walking over to my car. Like fuck yeah, DMX. Well, I can't emphasize enough how much I wish we had the DMX movie where even Mendes would have still been there and probably been dubbed over. We probably would have still had some of this stupid shit, but would have been infinitely more watchable than any time Seagal or Tom Arnold or some of these other people fucking show up and do their stupid shit. It, it, it just is, like, so great. <laughs> <laughs> I can't agree with you more. Uh, there's so many levels of overacting and underacting in this movie that it almost makes me nauseous. Um, <laughs> like, everybody is trying so hard to get something competently done out of this. And the star of the movie is just tanking constantly that it just becomes sort of this hodgepodge mess of genres that none of it connects well. Like the comedy all pretty much falls flat. The fight scenes are pretty bad. The action beats are really sort of choppily shot. Like it's just it's a terrible, terrible film. Yeah, down to the unfunniness really comes to light in over the first half of the end credits. There's a whole sequence where Anthony Anderson and Tom Arnold are on Tom Arnold's show talking back and forth with each other. It's clearly like improv between the two of them. That was like death for me, seeing the two of them try and improv at the end of that movie. It's just like, this is already, this is like the shit cherry on top of the shit Sunday. <laughs> We're just like, why are we doing this? I, you know, I don't know. I, it, it's, it literally feels like just an extra punch to the nuts. Here you go, guys. Here's one more for the road. And it's just, I don't, I don't know. I don't know why you put a comedy improv scene that's really not funny on the end of your action. Like, I just don't understand. No, there's a lot to not understand here. Um, Mike, I, why don't we go ahead and go into final thoughts here, Adam? What are your final thoughts on Exit Wounds? Uh, it's pretty much sort of the um, death nail as far as theatrical Seagal, I, I do think Half Past Dead was theatrical, but I think after that it was pretty much done with good reason. He's a terrible lead. He's completely uncharismatic. Uh, you could tell his ego was just everywhere on screen. And unfortunately, there is a kind of a cool little crime thriller movie in here somewhere that just unfortunately gets sort of sunk by just Steven Seagal's bullshit and needing to be the star and, and have all the cool beats to himself. And uh, ultimately, it's a messy movie. Nothing works. It doesn't look good. How many times do we have to hear the fucking Ain't No Sunshine song by DMX play in this movie? We get it. He wrote it. It's a popular song. I've heard it now ten times in one film. 
Like, it's just, it, it's too much, dude. It, it's just, it's a terrible film, and none of it, co- it's not cohesive, none of it gels together, and ultimately, uh, some of the worst, sort of, even in Steven Seagal land, martial arts scenes. Uh, yeah, I would say I don't quite like it either. It's not the worst of at least the limited Seagal I've seen. I would still say Under Siege 2 is a worst. Under Siege 2 Dark Territory. I'm sorry, I have to give oh. it its full name. Yeah, that's worse. Yeah, that's a that's a worse movie because it's like we mentioned. Like I would say, there is a good thirty to forty percent of this movie that focuses around DMX that I'm actually kind of intrigued by. Early on, when there's a scene where he talks to his brother in prison, visits him, there's a weird like pathos there that I don't get out of anybody else in this movie that immediately connected me to that dude. And you know, it's a shame that he you know he recently passed away, and I wish he had the chance to be a bit more of an interesting uh, actor. Uh, as I think he has the potential shown in here. Uh, he's, like, the, the easily the highlight of the whole movie, and he even makes, like, some stuff with Anthony Anderson. There's a really good scene where they're at the club, and Anthony Anderson, like, is clowning with him, and then there's a point where he's like, hey, man, I, I just wanted you to stop for a second. I just really wanted to say I appreciate, like, I wouldn't be here without you. And there's actually, like, a real connective moment, just like, wow, there's emotion here. It's immediately interrupted by Steven Seagal breaking into that club and doing stupid shit, <laughs> which is, like awful and that's the problem it's just that like anytime there's kind of like an interesting little crime movie that feels intimate and a bit more like emotionally engaging that steven seagal pops in and it's just like not trying and just wrecks the whole mood he just kills the vibe that could have been there very quickly and it's a shame because that's why i would say it's not i think lowers well like one of the worst we ever cover i don't think it's like extremely terrible but just it's this weird thing where there's a pretty solid movie interrupted by a terrible movie and that ends up meshing together um to be a not good one pretty much um especially whenever fucking steven seagal and tom arnold are together it is uh it's hell that's my hell if i die and go to hell my hell is just hanging out with steven seagal and tom arnold that's oh god (laughs) i wouldn't wish on my worst enemies even you adam uh yeah thanks i appreciate that because that would also be uh awful (laughs) yep personal hell but uh, before we get to our next segment, here is a message from the ESO crew that we fully endorse. Welcome to Dr. Geek's Laboratory. Dr. Geek here with another reminder that the ESO network is pro-science and pro-vaccine. We urge you to be a superhero and protect yourself, your family, and your fellow geeks around the world. Don't be fooled by the forces of evil and their anti-science misinformation campaign. Consult the latest CDC guidelines, your doctor, and get the COVID vaccine today. All right, so now it's time for the Double Redo, where basically every week, Adam and I program the best and worst possible double feature based around the topic uh, that we're doing. So we're doing martial arts films. So Adam has two good and two bad movies that he will recommend and then not recommend, respectively, to you all. And I have the same myself so go ahead adam with uh, your two good ones and two bad ones for the double redo martial arts style all righty so for my two good ones i have one that i'm sh- i think most people are at least aware of if they haven't seen uh but if you haven't you owe yourself it's some of the best martial arts choreography in the last uh, man at least decade um i have the raid it's so good dude eco i was like there's no question that dude was gonna be like on people's radar and then even Joe Toslim who went on to be sub zero in mortal Kombat and stuff. And he's getting a lot more work, um, just filled with just some of the sharpest, fastest, most brutal 
fight choreography I, I think I've ever seen. And for especially for it to come out of a place like Jakarta the, that is not known for martial arts sort of films is it, pretty impressive. And then uh, my other one is a like it's a period piece that is uh, is it or isn't it a werewolf sort of movie. Uh, it's called Brotherhood of the Wolf, starring a predominantly French cast. Uh, like th- I think this is the first movie I remember seeing Vincent Cassell in. Mark Dacascos is in it as well in a silent mainly silent role um as sort of our one of our two main heroes and uh again the action choreography and fight scenes in this are fucking spectacular it is so cool um my nephew plays games like bloodborne and stuff like that and really loves the aesthetic of that game with the way people are dressed and all that so he watched this and and fucking loved it it's it's so fucking cool it's really really good Unfortunately, the only version that's really out there is a dubbed version, but I will say the dubbing on it is not that bad. It's some of the better dubbing I've ever heard. So if you can check it out, if you can find it, find it. I think it's even playing in select sort of art house theaters right now for its anniversary. It's it's really, really good. And then for my bad ones, I have one, I have Jim Cotta, which again, I think a lot of people have heard of. Basically, Jim Cotta, they got this guy who was an Olympic gymnast sort of caliber and wanted to make a martial art out of it. So they made a movie starring him. And uh, it's just some of the dumbest shit I've ever seen in my life. Like why in the middle of a castle is there a pommel horse and a chin up bar? Uh, I, I will never understand, but he uses it to kick ass. And uh, it's so cheap. It's so poorly acted and just so funny. It's definitely a so bad. It's good, but it is bad. Um, and then my other one, uh, really falls in that realm too. It's one that Thomas and I recently watched that I had never heard of, and he knew of it by reputation. Uh, it's called Dangerous Men. Now, it's not necessarily a martial arts movie, but it is definitely gives you the impression that sort of the lead police officer character is supposed to be a badass who knows like fighting and can really kick ass. And it is some of the funniest shit I've ever seen. This guy, he can't land a punch. He can't throw a punch. He can't throw a kick. He gets stuck in the backseat of a car at some point in the movie, and it takes him like five minutes to get out. It is so fucking weird and crazy and stupid. And it was shot over the span of, I I don't even know how long, over a decade, and you could definitely tell. It is just so fucking dumb and lazy. But it might have the coolest theme song ever. Um so yeah, those would be mine. Well, um, I, I mean, at, at some point, I think both of your bad choices need to be discussed on the show. I considered Jim Cotta um, for the sports one because I had the bad picks, uh, the or the, the movie starring athletes one that we recently did. Um, but I, I decided, unfortunately, not to. I have not seen the movie in full, but I've seen stuff like the pommel horse thing and stuff. It's a movie we definitely need to cover. Same with Dangerous Men, which is such a hard movie to describe but we have to cover it on the show at some point that was one of my favorite things we ever did for a movie night because it's like such a bizarre little time capsule thing that i'm stunned exists uh both of them we will talk about at some point in the future of the show and i haven't seen brotherhood of the wolf it's one i've heard about for quite a while that i've heard it has a lot of uh, good martial arts stuff I'm, I'm very curious to see it at some point in the near future but uh the raid uh which i believe is the raid redemption over here um, yeah, I agree, is, like, so fucking dope. Um, and it has such a simple concept of, oh, hey, we're gonna try and go up this, uh, in- 
entire apartment complex basically and fight a bunch of people to get up to the top and fight the main guy which shout out to uh yayan ruhian i apologize if i mispronounced that who plays mad dog in the movie is my favorite like no offense to eo aquas or joe taslin who are both great but fucking that dude is like such a force of nature mad person in a way that i'm so captivated anytime i've seen him there in the raid 2 there's also another one i almost put for the show but uh the Takashi Miki film uh, Yakuza Apocalypse, uh, which is, he's so fucking good in. Like, that that dude in that movie, particularly, like, the whole final fight scene between the three of them is, like, such a stellar, like, piece of action choreography. Yeah, no, he's my favorite of the film, 100%. That guy, like you said, that final fight between him and Iko Iwas and his brother is so brutal and fast-paced, and once a fluorescent light bulb gets involved, you're like, oh, my God. But yeah, it's it's quite fantastic. Also, Shannon, the star of Jim Cotta was the late great Kurt Thomas, Olympic gold medal winning gymnast. Well, R.I.P. Uh, I guess. <laughs> um, but but yeah, so now it's my turn uh, to do uh, my own double redo picks. Uh, and as I mentioned, not as big of a martial arts person, but I've seen a couple, including I'll start with the one I saw most recently. Uh, because um, recently we lost a guy who, unfortunately, I wasn't as familiar with his big martial arts stuff, uh, but I decided to watch, I guess, sort of like his centerpiece movie, which is The Street Fighter. No, not Street Fighter like the video game. The Street Fighter, uh, starring Sonny Chiba, which is basically, like, the plot is pretty incomprehensible. It basically involves a guy, martial arts expert, getting this person out of jail, um, and then a whole bunch of like stuff involving like a crime family comes about. The plot's not important. What's important is that Sonny Chiba is like a werewolf of a human, uh, almost like a Wolverine. Like literally, he feels almost like more of like the Wolverine you would see in the comics compared to like a Hugh Jackman because he's kind of like hunched over. He's kind of like ferocious and mad, like he might have rabies or something like that. But he is so compelling to watch in these like this really cheap movie. It is so cheap. There's so many points where like he's falling down. There's bad rear screen projection that's going on, but he just through sheer source of like charisma and martial arts talent is just able to make you glued to the screen the entire time even with like the bad dubbing there's really a point in this dub i watched where mid-sentence a guy's voice changes because like so cheap but there's a real charm to it especially moments where like he will just hit somebody on the forehead with his fists and blood will come pouring out or in one case you he hits somebody on the head and it cuts to a bad like prop skeleton skulls getting bounced off on the head in a bad x-ray shot that's like so fucking fun in such a way and it's like i said very violent so much gore which also leads to my other good pick which is another movie we need to discuss on the show at some point one of my favorite just weird movies i've ever seen ricky go the story of ricky which is based on a manga and you can tell because it is like the goriest anime that isn't an anime because it's actually live action but it has all the sensibilities of like a cartoon just in live action and has some of the goriest deaths i've ever seen it is the goriest non-horror movie i've ever seen it's even gorier than most of the horror movies i've seen which just the way some of these people die is astonishing and it also has like some of that cheapness i was talking about with uh the street fighter but also it just is like so fascinating to watch like all the wire work and all of the like big elaborate choreography mixed in with like jesus crucifixion metaphors where people are like ricky o gets like literally crucified and it's like horribly covered in blood like it's passion of the christ but then also like very silly comedic characters who are horribly mutilated one guy turns into a big massive hulking brute of a person it is 
it's one of my just favorite fucking weird movies I've ever seen. It's so good. And all of you, especially that is one where you need to watch the bad dub. The bad dub is legendary and is like so fitting for this weird ass movie. Uh, and then the two bad ones, I'll just mention uh, Mortal Kombat Annihilation, which is sort of like infamous in terms of like the badness of a Mortal Kombat franchise, which for the record, most of them are pretty bad aside from the animated one. We talked about this on On the Edge of Relevance where we talked about the most recent Mortal Kombat movie. Most of those movies are pretty bad. This is the worst one. It's a pretty cheap production that replaces a cast that wasn't that great for, to start with in the 1995 movie and replaces most of them and rather poorly, quite frankly. Um, pretty disappointing effort all around very cheap very terrible one of the worst video game adaptations i've ever seen and that's saying so much uh but then again i at least don't hate as much as i do another movie we watched as a movie night thing adam war which uh stars jet lee and jason statham and um you would figure oh my god these two fighting against each other i know they'd been in the previous one i believe the one was the one they'd been in previously the whole movie's based around the two of them like trying to like fight with each other and so much of the movie is a fucking bland, boring, poorly made studio, like, crime movie with, like, a couple martial arts sequences vaguely in between. And it leads to a finale that's kind of cool. It's like, oh, they're actually fighting each other, but it's literally, like, the last five minutes of the movie. And I can't emphasize enough how this might be one of my least favorite final shots in a fucking movie. I'm not going to say what it is, but I, I literally was, like angry at adam for having made me watch this just war is one of like the most upsettingly bad movies i've ever fucking seen and uh, i will hate adam eternally for making me watch it <laughs> all right to be fair though we were watching just random statham movies and that was one of the ones we could find to watch so i was like all right I'll do this one i'd only seen it once previous and yes i i can honestly also agree war is awful who is it good for? Absolutely no one. Hey! Hey! Maybe um, I'm back. Uh, no. Um, yeah, War is Garbage, Mortal Kombat Annihilation, I, I think you said it all. It, it's It's got the reputation it has, deservedly. It's just dog shit. It's so cheap and bland. And the fact that they just put it out without it even being finished, just because, like, ah, I don't make money, which it did. Uh, it didn't make a lot, but it's still just, it's it's dog shit. And uh, I completely agree with Ricky O uh, just being one of the most violent, gory things uh, ever put on film. It is it is a spectacle to see. Um, it is so fun, though, too. That is definitely one of those. If, if you're watching it with somebody who hasn't seen it, you just you're going to get enjoyment out of just seeing them react to it. It, it, it that movie is batshit crazy. And then, uh, yeah, Street Fighter, uh, you know, of course, R.I.P. Sonny Chiba, but uh, he kicks all the ass in that movie very, very graphically. Uh, he was a force of nature in that movie as well. And, yeah, I, it is cheap. It is really cheesy, but it's kind of perfect. Uh, yeah, the the thing you said about Riccio, I definitely want to co-sign about showing it to friends, because I have done that a couple times, just like a room full of people who are just like, hey, it's a really gory martial arts movie, I don't want to tell you anything else about it. And the the looks people get, it's another one of those things where I agree, like, it's almost more fun, if you've seen the movie previously, to look at people as they react to certain moments. <laughs> They're like, it's so stellar. Um, and actually, before we end the double redo, I wanted to shout out, uh, we got a bit of feedback from a Bill L., a loyal listener of the show, who kind of said this, and I, I, I can 
see the issue where um, he, because of his own uh, neurodivergentness, he kind of had an issue where he wants to watch some of these movies we talk about in the Redo, but he kind of doesn't quite catch it the few times we talk about the titles. So I think from now on, at the end of our segments, we're going to repeat back the names of the movies that we chose. So I'll go ahead and just start once again. My good picks uh, for the double Redo were Ricky O, The Story of Ricky, and The Street Fighter. And then my bad choices were Mortal Kombat, Annihilation, and War. All right, and my good choices were Brotherhood of the Wolf, or Le Pacte de Lou, which I think is the subtitle, and then The Raid Redemption. And then my bad choices were Jim Cotta and Dangerous Men. Yes, and I especially recommend watching, and like I said, we need to talk about Dangerous Men. <laughs> it's just some point needs to happen. But... And actually, speaking of the double redo, Adam, we had a bit of feedback that I wanted to share um, in reference to our last episode from James Rodriguez, our friend of the show, of course. Uh, he says, uh, in reference to last week's episode about 2008, he says, my 2008 choices, all from the horror genre, uh, first is too good. He says, let the right one in, a hauntingly beautiful vampire tale, the strangers, a frighteningly real and nightmarish experience. And then his two bad were uh, the Day of the Dead remake from 2008, dreadful remake, and then Seed, the absolute worst thing from Uwe Boll, and that's saying something. I mean, I definitely agree with the Day of the Dead remake and both of his good choices. I love Let the Right One In and The Strangers. And I never allowed myself to watch Seed um, just because of the opening where it shows real animal brutality uh, throughout the opening film, and I, I will not. A, I, I don't want to support Uwe Boll, and B, I will not support something like that used as a uh, sort of scare tactic. I, I think that's tasteless and just despicable. Yeah, um, I've definitely not seen Seed, uh, but I can definitely say, yeah, I agree with uh, Let the Right One In and The Strangers are two very good ones, especially Let the Right One In is so good, especially in comparison to, I read the novel before I did a panel at Dragon Con a couple years ago for that. Um, and the novel I'm not a fan of. I think the novel is a lot more kind of seedy and exploitative in a way that I found just, like, not that interesting, as opposed to the the adaptation that they did in that is pretty great. Um, and then The Strangers, yeah, I didn't see until actually fairly recently before the sequel that came out, like, eight years later, or ten years later came out. Um, and that one's a solid little thriller uh, that, that really works, really good performances, especially for, like, Liv Tyler and the people that are wearing the, the bags on their heads. It's one that I think more people need to see, like, the horror genre in particular, I think. It's a it's an, one that was very popular at the time, and it's, I think, almost gotten a bit lost. I hope when that sequel came out, which I also kind of like for what it is, um, I hope more people have seen The Strangers as a result. Yeah, I dug the sequel, man. The sequel's fucking wacky, but it's fun. It's very different, but in a way that's refreshing, especially the the use of, like, uh, needle drops for an 80s song, particularly the uh, um, Morning Angel uh, needle drop in the pool. That's a stellar sequence. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, but uh, it's time to get to the end of the show and our picking for next week, so stay tuned for that. Um, but before we do, we want to thank some people, like thanks to Chris Oliver for the intro and outro used uh, for the show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Christian Thor Lally for the artwork for our show. Uh, follow him at Night of Water. That's night with a K underscore of underscore water for more of his great artwork. Um, and uh, we want to thank our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash dedpod, where for just $1 a month, you all get to vote for movies we cover, topics we do for a whole episode, and listen to bonus episodes we put out every month, including uh, right around the time 
This is coming out. Uh, we would have uh, recorded our latest On the Edge of Relevance, where we talk about more recent movies that are uh, either on streaming or in theaters. Uh, in this case, uh, we'll be talking about the latest incarnation of Candyman, which uh, we won't be saying five times on this episode, I can tell you that. Fuck. No, we won't. <laughs> it's true. We don't want any version of Candyman to come out at us. Uh, but uh, we also uh, want to encourage you, if you uh, like what you've been hearing here uh, to uh, either support us on the Patreon or help us out by buying some merchandise uh, over at the T public store uh, for the ESO network. There'll be a link in the description for that where um, it, you can help us out, get a few bucks thrown our way. If you buy a mug or a t-shirt or something else with our lovely logo on it, we get a bit of a kickback off of that. So it really helps if they do what Adam buy our merch. Oh, I'm sorry. Wait, 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 buy our merch, baby. No, go ahead. Buy our merch, mama. Oh, I don't want Steven Seagal as an endorsement. I, we do not support Steven Seagal. He is not a spokesperson for us. Fuck that guy. <laughs> well, whatever. But for more of our antics, please uh, follow us on Twitter and Facebook um, at DEDBpod, uh, where we post all sorts of fun stuff related to the show, including I'm definitely going to post some clips of some of the things from uh, <laughs> Exit Wounds, like even Mendez's voice. You'll definitely see some of that, just so you can see what exactly is going on there and hear it as well. And also you can submit feedback to us at doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com. If you want to find us individually, though, I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd as at NotTheWho'sTommy. I also do some writing at both marianitomas.wordpress.com and film-cred.com. And also, this is the last time I'm going to mention it because this week that we're releasing the episode out is the week of DragonCon 2021. Uh, so I'll be doing some panels over there. Please, uh, if you feel safe to go and are like fully vaccinated and uh, hopefully wear a mask, those are the mandates of the particular uh, going to DragonCon this year, please come out and, uh, you know, see me do some panels, including um, I'll be doing on Thursday, September 2nd, 7 p.m. at the Weston Peachtree 1-2. I'll be doing a What We Do in the Shadows panel. Um, also at that particular location, the Weston Peachtree 1-2, on the 2nd, um, at uh, 10 p.m., I'll be doing a David Cronenberg The New Flesh panel. Um, then on uh, September 4th, the Saturday at 7 p.m., I'll be doing Scary Monsters, a David Bowie and horror panel in that same Peachtree one two Weston location. Um, then there'll be a digital panel that anybody who doesn't feel safe enough to come to the convention can watch about the franchising slasher sequels of 1981, where I talk about Friday the 13th part two and Halloween two. Um, and then on uh, Sunday, September 5th at two 30 over at uh, the Marriott M one Oh three slash M one Oh five room. I will be doing a panel with a fellow ESO members uh, Mike Faber and Michael Gordon, uh, a panel about Fargo the movie in honor of its 25th anniversary, and then finally at the Peachtree 1-2 once again over in the Weston, I will be doing a panel on September 5th at 5.30 all about 1981, the year of the werewolf, where we'll be talking The Howling and Wolfen and An American Werewolf in London, so I'll also post that up on uh, my Twitter and stuff like that, so if you missed those uh, bits and pieces out, you can see my schedule over there on my social medias. If you're coming and feel safe, please see me at DragonCon. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Atom or Adam. That's A-T-O-M underscore O-R underscore A-D-A-M. And I'm also on Letterboxd at Schwanton. That's S-C-H-W-A-N-D-T. 
S-O-N. Yes, and for more of our content, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on the ESO network, why not dig into all the other great shows on the network, or also find our archives for a bunch of episodes we did even before we joined ESO over on our Podbean main feed. And nothing else, if you can't buy that merchandise or support us on the Patreon, the completely uh, free way to help us out is to rate, review, or simply share the show around, because that gives us more visibility literally the easiest thing to do so just fucking do it please well adam now it's time for us to do our picking for next week's episode which um every week uh adam and i each usually have uh two movies uh one has two good movies one has two bad movies we switch up on the quality for that and uh, we assign number between one and ten for both of those choices and uh, we pick numbers between one and ten so that gets us close to whatever good and bad choice and uh keep in mind though we do have the godfather rule uh where for um one single time adam and i have each a veto in our back pocket uh this veto will expire by the time of our next anniversary in may and basically, it, it's a veto where someone will say the choice, and they'll say, well, do you want to take the cannoli? And the person will either respond with a no, or actually, I'll take the cannoli. Thus, uh, negating that particular choice, and we have to go with whatever the other choice is that the other person chose. And uh, that is at least the case for any choices we have to pick together. Uh, though, keeping in mind, our patrons at patreon.com slash pods sometimes choose um, particular choices for us to do they've done that in this case for our next episode which in honor of the card counter is coming out we're going to be talking about willem dafoe great actor we've wanted to do an episode of him for a while um and they end up choosing the boondock saints which can't be vetoed uh that's one of those ones that can't be vetoed so we will indeed be doing the boondock saints is our bad choice which i honestly look i really really used to like that movie it's been a long time since i've seen it i'm imagining that i'm gonna hate it now It'll be uh, very interesting, because I remember seeing that uh, when I was in high school after hearing it was like a fun movie, and even then I thought it was fucking bad. So, we'll have a lot to talk about for that one. But, Adam, you have the two good choices, and I do have to pick number between 1 and 10 to potentially get a good choice here. So, for Defoe, I am going to pick number 4. All right. At number 3, I have a movie that I know you've seen and that you're fond of, and I have yet to watch so i'm using this as an excuse to i have the a24 florida project oh my god yeah um i'm i'm not taking the cannoli on this right away uh a film that's definitely obviously close to me for various reasons um but i'm very curious uh to to watch especially because it's a very muted defoe performance so it's been different from him all right it's a good choice what was the other one we could have ended up with the other one is uh which i think is just a fantastic film is uh, Shadow of the Vampire. Oh, wow, yes, an Oscar-nominated performance. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's great. It is a great movie, but it's so strange that movie got, he got yes. nominated for that performance. It's so weird, but it's great. Uh, very good call. But yeah, so Florida Project and The Boondock Saints. Uh, one movie where he's being incredibly over-the-top and one where he's a human being. That'll be very interesting. Both sides of Defoe. Yeah. Well, and yeah, that's the end of the show. And on that note, Adam, it's time to get into a giant choreographed martial arts sequence. Or get put on wires and do handstands that is impossible for someone of our frame to do. Well, let's go ahead and do it. Yeah! Oh, my back.
This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.